If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading uh, from that passage. Before I do, however, I just want to make it clear that Joshua's wife's name is Bethan. I mean, (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, I meant to correct, and I'm only making it worse. It's Megan, and I think I inadvertently... Well, I was heard to say Morgan, but I know it's not Morgan. I just want you to know that we know your right name. It's Bethan. No. (laughs) Um, I also want you to know that it will be our privilege to receive into membership our brother Larry Blake and be looking for his testimony both uh, out on the table and on our church's email and I want to um, just give you something to think about. Those, those of you who were in our adult Sunday school class today, very edifying, very enlightening, very helpful as always. If you were to find this question on a quiz, how do you think you might answer it? Jesus related to Mary in the following ways. He was her son, he was her father, he was her brother, and he was her husband. If you know the answer to that, and the question was, how can this be? And you understand some wonderful things about our Savior. That was just a small thing that came out of our adult Sunday school class today. Now, I want to read for you statements made by two famous preachers, and I want you to determine for yourself which statement you like, and in a sense, which of these men do you like. A very well-known preacher has said, quote, Once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace of God offered in Christ. Can I read that again? Once a person believes that he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. A new reformation should be based on the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. That's what one preacher says. Here is what another preacher says. In all unbelief, there are two things. A good opinion of self and a bad opinion of God. So long as these things exist, it is impossible for an inquirer to find rest. His good opinion of himself makes him think it quite possible to win God's favor by his own religious performances. The object of the Holy Spirit's work in convicting of sin is to alter the sinner's opinion of himself and to so reduce his estimate of his own character 
that he shall think of himself as God does. Pretty opposing views. Are you clear as to which position you embrace? And which one of these men you would like to be your pastor? If you chose the former, your pastor is Robert Schuller. If you chose the latter, your pastor is Horatius Bonar. I want us to think together this morning about a biblical theology of self-esteem. Now, this is going to be a topical message by its very nature, and I hope that that will be all right with you. Systematic theology is a topical study as well. So if you have a problem with that, you better talk to Pastor Sam, Dr. Waldron, and to try to um, pull him loose from his deep love commitment to systematic theology. I think if we always did topical sermons, that would be unhealthy. However, I quickly affirm that. I'm going to be talking about a biblical view of self-esteem, and I want to quickly define my terms so that you will be sure of what I'm talking about. Normally, the teaching and psychology about self-love and self-esteem is that in order for us to be emotionally healthy and socially acceptable and vocationally successful, we all need to love ourselves and to have a high view of ourselves, our looks, our intelligence, our talents, our strength, our potential, and so forth. And the more we love who we are and the higher we esteem ourselves, according to this philosophy, according to this emphasis, the happier and the more successful we will be in life. And this kind of self-love and self-esteem is what we as parents should be building into our children as early as possible This is what will make them achievers. This is what will keep them from bigotry and prejudice and violence and crime and even prison. Self-love, self-esteem. That's the theory. That's the psychology. That's the movement. That's the emphasis that I have in mind when I speak to you this morning about self-love and self-esteem. Now, I want to quickly clear away a brief distinction that I would make between typical self-esteem emphasis on the one hand and something else that I think as parents we all are warranted to do with our children on the other hand, and that is to give them loving affirmation to help build their confidence, not in their own righteousness, of course, but in the gifts that God has given them, and to produce a reasonable and helpful kind of security. I believe that is legitimate. I believe that is a world apart from typical self-esteem. We're not telling our children, you're the greatest thing that's ever come along, and you need to say that to yourself, and you need to believe that about yourself, and that's what's going to make you successful. Not at all. We tell them that they are sinners and desperately in need of a Savior. But we do help them know that we love them, and we're proud of them when they do well. And we try to help build confidence in them. No, sweetheart, you can do this. Daddy has seen you do it. Mommy's seen you do this. 
God has given you gifts. Now, if you can use them for His glory, He will help you. You will do well. And then to go to them afterwards and say, you did do well. I'm so proud of you. I love you. Thank God for how you did. Don't take credit to yourself. That is all perfectly acceptable. And as parents, we should be building into our children that kind of reasonable confidence and security and affirmation. So, what I'm about to teach about self-esteem, please, none of you conclude wrongly that I don't believe we should do those kinds of things for our children because that is not the case. But we wouldn't call that building their self-esteem. Now, I'm going to answer, try to answer three questions this morning, and I'm not going to give all of them to you now. I'm just going to save time. Question number one, what does the Bible teach about self-love and self-esteem? Answer, it teaches that we should not love ourselves. And it teaches that we should not esteem ourselves. That's what the Bible teaches about self-love and self-esteem. It says, don't do it, in essence. Don't love yourself. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, Pastor Ted. I thought Jesus said that the second commandment is you shall love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. That's right. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. He said, love your neighbor as, in the way, with the intensity, with the earnestness with which you already love yourselves. He didn't say, love your neighbor and love yourself. He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He assumes self-love. And far from our problem being, we just don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we love ourselves too much. Secular psychology says you can't love others until you first learn how to love yourself. And the Bible says you can't love others well until you quit loving yourself so much. Isn't that even our problem in marriage? We don't treat our spouse the way we ought to. We love ourselves too much. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded or even encouraged to esteem ourselves more highly. Because nowhere in the Bible are we commanded or even encouraged to esteem ourselves at all. I defy you, though I don't think any of you are challenging me, find one scripture in the entirety of the Bible that commands us or encourages us to love ourselves or to esteem ourselves. You will not find a single text. In fact, it is with esteem as it is with love. The Bible teaches that instead of loving ourselves, we are to love God first and then our neighbor. And that's it. No one else. And when it comes to esteem, the Bible teaches that instead of esteeming ourselves, we are to esteem others. And that's why I turned you to Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to notice again what Paul said to the Christians there. He's going to start reading with verse 1, and I'm going to go through 7a. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. How are we going to be of one mind at Heritage Baptist Church? Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
And this is what it's going to require. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count or esteem or regard or consider. I'm thinking of the word esteem right now. Esteem others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That has profound implications for a congregation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. We are to esteem others, not ourselves. And we are to esteem others as more significant than ourselves. And we are to count ourselves as nothing. That's what the Bible teaches about esteem. Not self-esteem, others' esteem. Pastor Rich has been preaching and has preached some helpful sermons on this very idea. Other-centeredness. But when you study that word, the original word, you will find, if you care to do such a thing, that it's used 27 times in the New Testament. I've looked at all of them. But the only ones that command us to esteem someone command us to esteem others, as we have just read, and command us to esteem pastors. Sorry, but that's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And the only other passage that commands us to esteem someone is found in 1 Timothy 6.1, where the Apostle Paul says, Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters, esteem their own masters as worthy of all honor. And I take from that that we should esteem those who are our superiors. So what about self-esteem? Nothing in the Bible about it. What about others' esteem? Clearly taught. Philippians 2, we've looked at that together. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 and 1 Timothy 6.1. Esteem others, including pastors and superiors, but never ourselves. So I want to say this to you then. There can be no such thing as a healthy self-esteem. How many times have we used that, though? He has a healthy self-esteem. She has a healthy. And maybe we want to emphasize the word healthy so that it sounds right and sounds good. And maybe we even mean well when we do that. But I challenge you to think about those words. If the Bible forbids us to esteem ourselves, how can there be such a thing as a healthy self-esteem? We can have a hopeful, encouraging wonderful, comforting self-assessment. But I'm not preaching about self-assessment, at least not this moment. I'm preaching about self-esteem. So there can be no such thing, as shocking as it may sound, as a healthy self-esteem. Question number two. What does the Bible teach about how we are then to regard ourselves? 
Well, the answer depends on whether you are or are not a Christian. Uh, I want to speak to those of you who are not Christians for just a moment, and I'm going to answer how you should regard yourself. And I hope you won't be angry with me, but I speak the truth. You should see yourself as a marred and ruined image bearer, image bearer of God, created in His image. You're not an animal. You have reason. You have affections. You have volition. That is the power to make decisions and choices. Will. You have the ability to communicate. You have the ability to be relational. You have the ability to create, quote-unquote. You have the ability to invent. It's part of being an image bearer. You should see yourself as a marred and ruined image bearer, unable to satisfy the deepest God-created needs of your soul. That's how you should see yourself. You were made to know and to love and to serve and to glorify and to enjoy God, but until you come back to God like the prodigal son, you will go on in a vain, futile, insatiable desire to find meaning and significance in life through a million God-substitutes. And unless you see that your greatest sin is not Loving this good God supremely. That is the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And until you see that your greatest sin is not loving this good God supremely, but loving yourself, you will not come to His Son for atonement. You will not be pronounced righteous in Him. You will not be adopted into the family of God. You will not have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you and enabling you to conquer sin. And you will continue to pursue the fleeting, fickle esteem of men until you die and then sink into hell. You should regard yourself as a helpless, doomed sinner. Your only real dignity is that You bear the image of God, though marred. That's what the Bible teaches about how you should regard yourself. Hope you're not mad at me. But if you are, then you're also going to have to be mad at God and His Word. Because that's the truth. So, how should you regard yourself if you're a Christian? And I'm going to say two things about this. I want to say, first of all, that if you are a true Christian, and by the way, a Christian is just someone who has seen their horrible sinfulness before God, knows they're on their way to hell, knows they deserve to go to hell, knows they're in deep trouble with God, especially with His holiness and His justice, knows that His wrath toward you needs to be satisfied somehow. And God has given you eyes to see that Jesus Christ made that propitiation propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, died for them, lived a perfect life, provides them with a perfect righteousness, made a perfect payment for their sins, and the good news of the gospel is that whoever looks to Him, calls upon Him, believes upon Him, trusts in Him, 
All those sins are given to Christ. They're all paid for by Him and all of His righteousness is given to you and you're pronounced righteous and justified in His sight. That's what a Christian is. Then that Christian from that point on, by the help of the Holy Spirit, follows the Lord Jesus as his master and seeks to be conformed to his moral image. So if you are that kind of a person, how should you regard yourself? Because I made it clear that you shouldn't pursue self-love and self-esteem. Then how should you regard yourself? Number one, you should regard yourself with a realistic, humble, and sad acknowledgement that even though you are perfectly forgiven, past, present, and future, you're still a horrible sinner. See, Pastor Ted, this sermon's a really, this is a downer. You're saying some hard stuff. I am. Because it's, but it's still the truth. It's still the truth. Though we are forgiven, though we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, in and of ourselves, we are still horrible sinners. Sin no longer masters us, but sin hassles us. Sin is no longer president, but it is very resident. Sin no longer reigns, but it remains. And we're going to fight it until we die. And we need to be realistic about it. And we need to be humble about it. And we need to be sad about that. You know that you don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, do you? Are, are there any here today so blind or so proud as to say, I do? I don't. I wish I did. I long for the day when I will. But all of us still have much sin. We have much self-love. We have much lack of compassion. We have much pride, covetousness, envy, prejudice, superficiality, resentment, judgmentalness, laziness, cowardice, worldliness, addictive behaviors. And fundamentally, we all have much unbelief. So, I say to all of us this morning, let's be realistic in our self-assessment in our self-estimate. I don't believe in the self-esteem movement. I believe in the self-estimate movement. The self-assessment movement. And as we assess ourselves in and of ourselves, we must be sad and humble and realistic. If we take the word esteem to mean how it is defined in the dictionary, namely, to regard highly or favorably or to think with respect, then I say to all of us this morning, we are never, ever, 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 ever to possess a high self-esteem. We may recognize and be thankful for the dignity which we possess as image bearers, as long as we remember that that image is marred. Yes, for Christians, that image is in the process of being renewed. How thankful for that we are. Paul teaches in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians that we are being renewed after the likeness of God. But that's the deal. We're being renewed. We're not completely renewed. We don't have all that we lost in the fall. How thankful we may be that that is presently taking place and that someday it will be gloriously completed. For when He appears... 
We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, but for now, we are still marred image bearers. We are still plagued with indwelling and remaining sin and the painful realization of how unlike our Savior we still are, screams at us and says, don't ever, ever, ever nurture and cultivate and entertain high self-esteem. Flee, rather, again and again and again and again to the one and only person about whom our holy God said, this is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased, namely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to flee to Him over and over and over and make sure that we are in Him by faith so that when God looks upon us in all of His holiness and justice, He sees His Son. So, if we are realistic and sad and humble about this accurate assessment, then we can say with the Apostle, and it'll be good. It won't be just be okay. It will be good. What? Say what? Say this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I am the very least of all the saints said the Apostle Paul. I am in fact the chief of sinners, said the Apostle Paul. I know that in my flesh no good thing dwells. And if we see ourselves realistically, we can also say with Job, Behold, I am a small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. Job, what's wrong with your self-esteem? Nothing. I have seen the glory of God. And now I have to repent. We may say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And we may also sing. We may sing with the former African blasphemer, slave trader John Newton, as we do so often, but I hope with newer and newer amazement. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. We may sing with Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And we may sing with Watts in that other hymn that we love so much. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head? For such a worm as I? Yes, we may sing those very songs and sing them with new meaning. But 
we don't have to just look at ourselves realistically and sadly and humbly. I want to tell you how else we may look at ourselves and regard ourselves. It is with a faith-rooted persuasion that in spite of our present sinfulness, as objects of God's saving grace, we now possess an even greater dignity and blessedness than we got by virtue of creation. We have been eternally loved by God the Father. That's foreknowledge. We have been eternally chosen by God the Father. That's election. We have been historically redeemed by God the Son. That's atonement. We have been savingly regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth. We are presently indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. The God of the universe is our Father. The King of kings and Lord of lords is our Savior. And the blessed Holy Spirit is our Counselor and our Comforter and our Seal and our Sanctifier. We are the apple of God's eye. We have a God who is committed to us, not only for all of life, but for all of eternity. We have a Savior who says, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. And when that time comes, He will place us on His right hand. And He will say, Well done good and faithful servant. And until then, He will go with us through every valley, even as He has gone with J.D. and Bethan. And I affirm what was said earlier by Pastor Rich. I wish that all of you could have been there. I hope you weren't, I hope you were prevented in not being there. That was a huge life event in the history of Heritage Baptist Church. We lost. Death came to this church. We pray frequently from this pulpit, thank you God for not breaking our corporate heart this week with some sorrow. God in His perfect wisdom broke our hearts, but think how He broke the hearts of J.D. and Bethan. And yesterday, we experienced something wonderful at the cemetery. And we experienced something wonderful in the fellowship hall. And they, they proved and are proving that this God who is ours walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Have I not just given you 10 or 12 wonderful perspectives on how we may regard ourselves if indeed we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ only for our salvation and have been adopted into the family of God. We may, no, we must look at ourselves that way as well. Not only realistically in terms of remaining sin, but by faith in terms of who we are in our Lord Jesus Christ. The third and last question what does the Bible teach, then, about how we may obtain a legitimate 
a legitimate sense of inward well-being. I didn't say how we may obtain healthy self-esteem. No way. How then may we obtain a legitimate sense of inward well-being without going down the road to self-esteem? And the answer to that question is, the Bible teaches us that the best way to feel good about ourselves is to obtain and maintain a good conscience toward God and toward man. Instead of trying to improve our self-esteem, what we need to do is to improve the verdict of our consciences. You hear me? This is done by seeking to conform our behavior in our words, thoughts, and deeds more and more and more to the will of God out of love for God. The more we do that, what? Conform our behavior, word, thought, and deeds to the will of God out of love for God. The more we do that by His grace and for His glory, guess what? The better we will feel about ourselves. And I don't apologize for that expression. It's not wrong to want to feel good about yourself if you desire to feel good about yourself for the right reason. If our behavior is governed by the right motive, love for God, and the right standard, His Word, there's nothing pharisaical or selfish about that pursuit. I want to feel good about myself, first and foremost, out of love for God and His Word. That doesn't make me a Pharisee. That doesn't make me selfish. That makes me God-oriented. If our motive for obtaining a good conscience is driven by the desire first and foremost to please God, so much so that we would do it whether it made us feel good or not, then we are not using God to obtain that inner sense of well-being. It's just a built-in reward by God that comes along with seeking to please Him. The main reason I want a good conscience is not so that I can have a good feeling, that's not the main reason, but because I want to please a good God. But I do want a good feeling that comes from a predominant desire to please a good God. Because if I don't have that good feeling for pleasing a good God, probably I'm not pleasing this good God. Now, what I'm trying to say here you may ask, is that really biblical? Or is this just sort of some Christian psychobabble? And I just want to show you very quickly, as we draw towards an end, two things. I want to show you what the conscience is designed by God to do, and I want to show you an example of a person who did this. Remember, my main point is that <clears throat> there is a legitimate sense of inward well-being, and we have a right to seek it, and it should be sought by obtaining a good conscience. So let me show you how the conscience is designed to work. Very quickly, Romans chapter 2. And then in just a moment, we're going to see how the author himself of this letter to the church at Rome governed his life by this. In chapter 2, he says this to us in verse 
12 and following. For all who have sinned without the law, that is, without the written word of God, will also perish without the law. It's not going to keep them from perishing. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That is, on the last day, this is sort of an eschatological, the final justification. We're permanently justified by faith, but there will be a final acquittal. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, don't have the written word of God, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. That's what our consciences are designed to do. They're always watching. They're always sitting in judgment. And they're going to do one of two things. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's what the conscience does. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to say, I can't excuse you for that. The conscience also is designed to say, I do excuse you for that. I don't accuse you. The conscience excuses and the conscience accuses. And that's a very precious thing you have, boys and girls. Be careful about willfully Of course, this is true for mom and dad and all the rest of us. Be very careful about willfully violating your conscience. It's a very precious aspect of being made in the image of God. And if you violate your conscience over and over and over and over, you can do real serious harm to it. The conscience tells you, I shouldn't have done that. The conscience says, that was good. I need to do more of that. That's what the conscience is designed to do. So when the conscience does what it's designed to do, sometimes it makes us feel bad about ourselves and should, and sometimes it makes us feel good, not just about ourselves, but about the behavior that God helped us perform. And if I had time, I would go back to Genesis and show you what happened to Cain, because you remember Cain and Abel both presented a sacrifice to God, and Cain's sacrifice wasn't based on faith. That is, it it didn't follow God's prescribed method of approaching him by way of a a bloody sacrifice. It represented his own self-righteousness, and God didn't accept it. I don't know how he demonstrated his lack of acceptance, but once Cain realized he was not accepted and his brother was, he got mad at his brother, and God confronts him and says, Hey, Cain, um, you seem to be in depression. You seem to be suffering for a, from a poor self-esteem. What's wrong, Cain? You want me to explain to you? If you had done what was right, your countenance would not be fallen. And you wouldn't be angry unto hate towards your brother. You didn't do what you knew you should have done. Your sacrifice didn't represent faith and obedience. No wonder your countenance is fallen. God designed the conscience to do that. So I'm saying to you, do you want that sense of inner well-being that is legitimate? Then the best way to get it is by striving for a good conscience. How do you get a good conscience? By doing the will of God as revealed in His Scripture out of love for God. 
and out of delight in Him. And then the byproduct is, it feels so good to do these things out of love for God. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul lived. And so our final passage, just notice Acts chapter 24, verse 16. This would be great to memorize. And moms and dad, maybe, maybe today you could show this to your children again. And you could memorize this in your home. And from time to time, apply this as a kind of paradigm to what's happened in the home. Well, let's see what Paul said. He said, so I always, wow, that's great, always. Don't just do this once in a while. Apply this all day long, every waking moment of your life to all of your behavior. I always take pains, wow, he's serious about this, yes, to have a clear conscience in two directions, both toward God, that's the vertical, and man, that's the horizontal. That's how we lived. What are you going to do today, Paul? Well, I've got a lot of things I'm going to try to do for God's glory, and by what standard are you going to try to carry these things out in a way that keeps me possessing that sense of inner well-being that comes from a conscience that doesn't accuse, but excuses, a conscience that says, good. In what directions are you going to do that, Paul? Oh, first and foremost, toward God. I don't want to do anything today that God will have to say, that was wrong. I'm not pleased with that. And I'm also going to do this on the horizontal level toward my fellow man. I always take pains, always take pains to have a clear conscience. Now, I don't want to put it this way, but I'm just going to say it this way. Do you want a good self-esteem? Then work on yourself for the glory of God by the revealed will of God, so that you have a good conscience. But I'm going to take that back, because I don't want to use that language. There is no such thing as a healthy self-esteem. There is such a thing as a good conscience. There is such a thing as a healthy self-estimate. Hope you got that earlier. I'm not promoting the self-esteem movement. I'm promoting the self-estimate movement, the self-assessment movement based upon God's Word. So, here's the summary of the whole deal this morning. What we've seen is that we're nowhere commanded in the Scriptures to um, love ourselves or to esteem ourselves. What we are directed to do is to assess ourselves. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to turn you to this, but I have to go back on my Word and read for you a critical passage. And I, I don't know how I overlooked this except... In my weakness. Listen to Paul one last time. He says this in, in Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Sounds like self-esteem. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He knew what our tendency is. He says, please, 
Please don't think more highly of yourself. Take sober assessment of yourself. That's what we're to do. And we should see who we are by virtue of our creation. And we should see who we are by virtue of our salvation. And I want to say one sort of a parting word, especially, well, to all of us, but especially to the unconverted and especially to the young people. Would, would all you guys that are, say, middle school on and high school and college, just, just for a moment, listen really carefully to me. I'm not saying we don't struggle with this after then or before then, but these are really the unique years. Young people, please don't look for good the good feeling, a good feeling about yourself in all the wrong places. Please don't look for a good feeling about yourself in all the wrong places. What do you mean, Pastor Ted? Well, like starting with a mirror. It's so easy to make yourself an object of worship. It's so easy to be unduly preoccupied with looks, our height, our shape, the color of our hair, the texture of our hair, the volume of our hair. I could take off on that one. Well, I thought, I thought man, there's a place to go. <laughs> you had a comb over like mine. You'd realize that in one sense you do have to take a lot of interest in it because if you don't, you know, you got to get it just right and you got to spray it, but if you spray it, it looks like a wig. If you don't spray it and someone sneezes, it looks like a weather vane. It looks like a sundial. <clears throat> and you all say, well, why don't you just get rid of it? Getting close. I'm getting close. I almost came back from Florida with it gone. Jonathan's working me. Working, working hard on me. I said, Dad, you could be good looking like me someday if you just get rid of that. <laughs> but having a little fun, listen to me again, young people. Please listen to me. Don't look for a good feeling about yourself in all of the wrong places. It's not about your looks and your height and your shape and your hair and your athletic ability and your musical ability and your artistic ability and your personality and your IQ and your giftedness. And your friends. And you will be tempted to be troubled about your appearance. You'll be tempted to not be satisfied with the way God made you. Why didn't God make me taller? Why didn't He give me that color of hair? That texture of hair? Those color of eyes? Why can't I excel well at sports? And on and on go all the questions you need to remember that God knit you in your mother's womb. Psalm 139. He made you the way you are, apart from whatever sin may have done. That's what He wants you to be. And every moment of your life that you don't like that part of your humanity, you have a controversy with God. And when you look in the mirror and you're unhappy with yourself... You almost ought to see yourself as looking up and say, God, I'm mad at the way you made me. You need to say, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you that I'm not a quadriplegic. Thank you that 
that I do have eyes. On and on you may go. Don't chafe at who and what God has made you. Don't covet other people. Don't complain about His providence. Don't be always disgruntled. Embrace what God made you. But especially, find your dignity Find your worth. Find your value. Not just in the fact that you've been made in the image image of God, but that you have been saved by the grace of God. That Christ is your Savior. That you are heaven-bound. And everything else is relatively insignificant. That's how to get the, the legitimate Good feeling, good sense of inward peace. And that's the only legitimate way to get it. And some of you then need to get to Christ as quickly as you can possibly get to Him. You're just wasting your time trying to establish self-esteem. You're wasting your time. The harder you try, really, the less some people do esteem you. Because they see how desperate you are. You ever seen desperate people trying so hard to be young? Trying so hard to be cool? Trying so hard to be accepted? So sad. Such a futile endeavor. But when you see that you bear the image of God and that it's ruined and marred, but there is a God who repairs it. And when you come to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that process of the restoration of the image of God begins and someday it will be consummated. There's a reason to really, really feel good about yourself. May that be your reason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word is clear about how we should regard ourselves in and of ourselves and in Christ. We thank You that every single human being in this room and in the overflow room has been created in Your image and therefore has some dignity. We thank You that the worst criminal on death row who should be punished with capital punishment, still is an image bearer. How we thank you that you are gracious to begin the process of restoring the marred image in those who come to your Savior. Please help us to see ourselves and to assess ourselves biblically And may we glory in who we are in our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your song sheet, first verse only of the last hymn. Have you heard him, seen him, known him by his... This is the first verse. Let's stand and sing.